Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Amelie Dieter, and this is a podcast for people who are new to the field or interested in public health. And today I'm at Sydney University and I'm being joined by Professor Bill Bellew. He's an adjunct professor of public health at the University of Sydney and he's also a professorial fellow at the Prevention Research Collaboration, which is where we're sitting today. Thank you for joining me today, Bill. It's my pleasure. Uh, so just before we started, you were sort of explaining how um, the centre here all sits together. Would you mind explaining that for our listeners? Because it sounds like you cover a lot of different areas sort of in your role. Well, we're in the Charles Perkins Centre, which is an amazing building, six levels. And the very architecture of the building is designed to try to get different disciplines c- collaborating a little bit more. So there's a lot of crossover work that goes on. That's the first, first thing to say. We're in an amazing building that's designed to get disciplines working together. And then we've got our own group, the Prevention Research Collaboration, and it really covers a multitude of areas. We've got um, our PANOG group, Physical Activity, Nutrition, Obesity Research Group. They do a lot of applied research, close working with policymakers. So there you might find a ministerial advisor or a senior officer wants the answer to a research question but they want it tomorrow, not in a year's time. (laughs) And so we got groups who are expert on the very rapid distillation of evidence. That's something that panel does well and also thinks about evaluation. We've got the Australian Systems Approaches to Physical Activity Project, ASAP, and that's an MRFF, or Medical Research Futures Fund, funded project. And that's looking at systems thinking and systems approaches to physical activity nationally. So that's a fascinating group. We're working with policymakers right around Australia. We're looking at evidence. We're getting to think about using complex systems thinking to look at the issues of physical activity. What are the influences? What are the solutions? Another project we've got is Sprinter. Basically, it's sport and recreation and epidemiology, the appliance of science for sport and recreation. We work with the Office of Sport. That's the group that's behind the evaluation, for example, of the Active Kids voucher scheme that you might be aware of. And that's a, that's a thrilling thing where we've actually got very good cohort data that we'll be looking at the impact of active kids' vouchers. Lots of other things going on here. People are experts in biostatistics, epidemiology, health economics, social marketing, mass media. We've got another research group. And it's all about prevention of non-communicable diseases. Yeah. So we're interested especially in physical activity, nutrition, obesity, to some extent alcohol. We're developing our strengths there. We do tobacco control from time to time, but if you were to pick our really areas of focus, it would be physical activity and nutrition and obesity. Yeah. Um, and would you mind just setting the scene for us in terms of what is going on currently? I mean, obviously, we know it's an issue, physical exercise, obesity around the world, but what's the sort of current situation? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Because it's a bit of a mixed report card for Australia. If we pick physical activity, um, where you get gold stars, we're top of the class in terms of generating research. If it's about putting good policies in place, it's the diametrically opposite position. We find it very hard for some reason to pull together a good national strategy and address the issues, and our prevalence rates of what we would call adequate physical activity, in other words, sufficient to keep us healthy, has actually been flatlining for about three decades. So in terms of, we actually do a scorecard on some of those issues. Tobacco control, for example, doing very well, terrific taxation policies, good mass media and so on. Every cigarette's doing you damage, how could we miss that one? And that's, that's going very well. The rates are amongst the lowest in the world. Physical activity, we've got much work to do. In terms of obesity, 
Um, it's not just an Australian um, problem, it's a global problem. I don't have to tell you or any of the people listening to this podcast that we've got a real issue. There's some hope, I suppose, in the sense that the rates are evening off, levelling off, if you like. The trouble is they're levelling off at a rate where so much of the population is overweight or obese, it really is a grave challenge. To the extent that we're actually starting to predict a decrease in life expectancy, and there's been some headlines to say this is the first time we've had a generation where the children are not going to live as long as the parents did because mostly we've been seeing increases in life expectancy. So there's real challenges in obesity. We're doing extremely well in tobacco. In alcohol, youth rates of, um, of alcohol consumption are coming down. That's despite the very poor efforts that we've got in terms of dealing with alcohol advertising and sponsorship in some of our sporting codes, for example. Overall, Australia is a lucky country and it's doing very well in terms of controlling NCDs, but it's a bit of a mixed report card. What is some of the research showing in terms of what actually works to get people to change their behaviour? As a general truism, the thing that works is the things that they don't have to think about very much. So if we change an environment, for example, where the healthy behaviour is almost the inevitable behaviour, that works best. The more we have to engage people in thinking about things and making goals and going for behaviour change, that can work too. But by far the easiest thing is the, the intervention that makes things automatic. If we want to encourage people to walk more, it's very difficult if there aren't footpaths or green spaces or places to walk. And that's a bit about how we design our cities and our spaces, for example. But if we've designed those spaces and those places and if we've thought about shops that are nearby and cycleways and things that are attractive and things that we actually put signposts on to say, you know, go this way and it's healthy, it sort of just becomes part of the fabric of society and people don't actually have to cognitively get engaged in that, it just happens. So that's the first answer is the, the upstream strategies work best. The challenge we've got is they're often the ones that are least popular with government because they involve what a lot of people complain about as nanny statism, or it involves upsetting some industries who might lose profits if we, for example, ask them to put a warning label on alcohol, or if we want to raise the price of sugar-sweetened beverages in, or in order to reduce their consumption because they contribute to obesity then some of those best strategies will be the ones most vigorously opposed by industry. We've got a wide range of social marketing, mass media-based approaches that work well. Education does work, but again, as I'm saying, it's, we want that mix of strategies. Typically, we'd love to have that one thing that's the answer, that one bullet, but with these complex issues, what we're finding more and more is you need a suite of things. Yeah. You need a comprehensive approach, working at different levels, ideally implemented concurrently and so that you can affect the population right across the life course, some in the early years of life, some in adolescence, and that will happen in different settings. For example, school-aged children, hey, we've got schools and we've got policies and an environment, fairly captive audience, there are things we can do there. Yeah. But when they finish school and they're out and about in their free range, then we need those environments and we need controls on marketing and advertising, 
and so on. So it's a mixture of things. Yeah, I think it's a really great example of how public health covers so, it's so broad, it covers so many different aspects of government. It's really not just the health department, it is things like transport or planning. So I, I want to touch on your work in tobacco control as well, but I, I guess what I might just jump back a little bit and ask, what first you first got you interested in public health and in particular non-communicable diseases? How did you sort of get here in life? It was a complete accident. <laughs> I knew that a lot. <laughs> I was actually um, a human movement teacher. So I was I had a background in sport and I was an acceptably reasonable middle distance runner. And if you're a middle distance runner and you were my generation then there were certain colleges that you tried to go to because they were interested in middle distance running and sport and so on. And for one reason or another, it ended up being human movement in a particular line of approach. So I ended up teaching in a school in London, which is where I did my, uh, my teacher training. Well, I was interested in health education because it was one of the options that I'd done during my, my training. And the Education Authority had um, a special project and it looked at school-based in-service for what they call personal, social and health education. And I ended up as the coordinator of that role by accident. It was one of the first health-promoting school models. It wasn't called that at the time, it was later. And so I was the health-promoting schools coordinator. I ended up linking with the National Health Promotion Agency in the UK to pilot some of their materials and so on. And cut a long story short, I ended up working in the National Health Promotion Agency not realising I'd just left education and entered the world <laughs> of public health. I found that out later. Yeah. What happened study-wise? So once you started working um, in the National Health Promotion Centre, did you go back and do more study or did you sort of pick things up as you went along? Yeah, that's interesting. So there was a, um, if you like, incidental learning. So there was, I worked in the National Agency within the section that played to my strengths, so I was in the young people setting as it was called, so I dealt with the world of education. But then you worked in multidisciplinary teams, so then I was a part of a team that was doing a mass media campaign about smoking control. And so you got exposed to all these wonderful other disciplines and it broadened your, my idea of what health promotion and disease prevention was really about. So I worked in that role and kind of learned on the job if you like. But then later I had to go back and fix myself, so I did a Master's of Public Health <laughs> at the University of Sydney when we came to live in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's great. And then what drew you to academia? Was it because it had that sort of teaching aspect? I mean, there's a grain of truth that I'm an, I'm an educator uh, at heart, so that's a part of it. So I think um, one of the roles I landed in in Australia was in the, in the Ministry of Health or New South Wales Health, as it was. And I started out in life in charge of the nutrition and physical activity area you kind of, as you get known, people might invite you to do a, a guest lecture, so there's a yeah. little bit of that sort of stuff. But the other um, nexus came when I'm very interested in making sure that we have evidence-informed strategies and approaches, and so there's a natural linkage to, to, to reach out to the universities. Yeah. So I suppose we started a tradition of linkages between scientists and policymakers before it was fashionable to look at getting evidence in policy and practice, although there had been some work in the UK I was familiar with. Then, of course, my own study of going back to do Masters of Public Health also put me in that environment. I was probably a more an unusual student in that sometimes the stuff that we'd be looking at in the Masters of Public Health would be, I'd be going, ah, oh, I worked on that programme. <laughs> I remember once in tobacco control, we were studying something that I was a project officer on, for example. <laughs> yeah. And so... 
it was a, it sparked a slightly different experience yeah. for me as a student. And I, I mean, I had terrific teachers as well, so there were amazing role models, people who really inspired me. But I think an important thing was later we got interested in research centres that were capable of being repositories of knowledge that outlasted governments at times. And so you, you kept this stability, if you like, with certain research centres. And some of them were at this very university. So there we are. That's, I don't know if that's, that's a long-winded way of explaining the entree into academia. No, that's good. And I think I hear that a lot from people, that it's, you know, careers aren't necessarily planned. It's sort of just taking the next thing that comes along and, you know, following things that you're interested in, which sounds like you've done. People use the word pracademic. It's kind of a hybrid between a practitioner and an academic. I think that's good, though. Yeah. So that was actually going to be my next question in terms of you were talking about getting researchers and policymakers to talk. So what are some of the challenges around that? Well who generated the question in the first place. If it's, if it's researcher-driven, it might be policy-relevant, but it might not. Um, another answer to your question is, I referred earlier to the work of PANORG, and they said their government wants some evidence, but they want it tomorrow. So there's the, there's the timeliness. It's the, the research and the knowledge that we provide when we're thinking about policymakers, it's got to be in politically relevant timeframes. And they're often much, much faster than academically relevant mm. timeframes. We might have a nice systematic review that we're going to look at and think, yes, we could, that's going to be 18 months of work. But could you tell me tomorrow what the headlines are going to be, um, a policymaker will ask? And somebody around here can do that because they're familiar with the literature. So yeah. sometimes they will want that headline review. They will, or what's the latest evidence saying? Other times they'll have more, a little bit more time, the luxury of a fortnight perhaps for one of our rapid reviews and we can pull that together and we can use more of systematic review type techniques but compressed into a shorter time frame and doing, we might look at reviews of systematic reviews rather than in-depth stuff. Yeah. So the co-production is an important thing where the partnerships are there so that the sorts of request, research questions that we're pondering are ones that are actually in the minds of the policymakers. They want to know stuff about solutions to childhood obesity. How do you increase physical activity in adolescence? Or what, what, what on earth can you do with adolescence? And, and how have you built those relationships? Is it because you used to work in the government? I mean, I think worldwide one has seen a move towards looking at how you cross that mm. supposed divide between research and, and policy. Sometimes it's come about because government has decided to fund a scheme. In New South Wales, for example, there are, there are what we could call capacity building grants, where the government will provide, the state government in this case, provides um, uh, resources that are it's for capacity building. And so you can set up a research centre. They don't fund a particular study. They're more interested in you having the capacity to have biostatisticians, epidemiologists, people who will support local health districts with translation research grants. Yeah. And so that allows you some freedom and it allows you to think about the, the linkages. But government may say, we're very interested in certain strategic themes and one of those strategic themes is linkages between policy and practice and making sure that's an evidence linkage. So by having a strategic direction in some government funding of research, not pinning down too much what the outputs will be, but talking about the process of partnership between policymakers and researchers, that's a smart way of, of building that capacity and nurturing it. And then thinking about, well, what will the indicators of success look like? Well, one might be that 
we see that evidence actually applied in what the government has put up as its priorities, or we'll see examples of where bureaucrats and researchers are actually co-authors of papers together as long as we don't get in the way of any conflicts of interest and yeah. so on. So those kinds of things nurture that. That sounds great. And I just want to uh, change directions a little bit and talk about the work you've done in tobacco control. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a, an overview of what that work looked like. You were telling me earlier that you did a lot of work overseas with a lot of funding. So of course tobacco is one of the big ticket items in, in preventable disease, tobacco control. It's possibly ahead of the pack of other diseases because it's, it's had better evidence for longer. Mm. So we've had the United States Surgeon General's report back in the 60s, whereas we've had the Surgeon General's report of, on physical activity not until 1996. Mm. So it's probably got a 30-year start on everybody else. Consequently, we really do know very well what are the strategies that work in tobacco. We're more fortunate again because that's been wrapped up in what's called the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. That's unusual. It's, um, it's a framework convention. In other words, it's an international treaty, like we'd have one on climate change. It's legally binding. So the member states that sign up to it, they are legally bound to adhere to the provisions of that treaty. And the one on tobacco control is remarkable. So put that in as a basic scenario, we've, got, we've codified all of the evidence-based strategies for tobacco control and we've got a global treaty, it's the only one for health, by the way. And then bring onto the scene, imagine that you've got Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, and Bill Gates, and they pour millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to try to get that framework convention implemented in the countries of the highest burden. Well, that's exactly what happened. So to start with, we had the, the Bloomberg global strategy on, on tobacco control. It just was a juggernaut of an initiative. It just created an amazing intelligence, really, with all kinds of partners, WHO, um, Centers for Disease Control, International Union Against TB and Lung Disease, or the Union, Tobacco-Free Kids in the US, Johns Hopkins University. And they created these amazing functions a whole team of technical advisors all around the world who could go into countries, a grants program that set up major grants which could be used to build a government's capacity in tobacco control or build civil society's capacity in tobacco control. There were other advisors to come in on financing and looking at what sort of budget would be deployed and so on. There was a leadership development program meanwhile to build the leaders of the future. Meanwhile, WHO and the Centers for Disease Control rolled out a systematic way of doing surveillance, GATS, the Global Adult Tobacco Survey. So a systematic way of doing surveillance globally so that we can say, how are we doing in India? How are we doing in Russia? So that's a remarkable thing. So I was very privileged to be one of those technical advisors. My work took me to India, to Bangladesh, especially the Philippines. I'm proud to have had some hand in achieving taxation policy in the Philippines against all odds, against the tobacco industry's efforts and they're very powerful in the Philippines. They put in place a good taxation policy, the revenue from which was used to fund universal health care. And so that was a double win. Yeah. But I mean hats off to the philanthropists, uh, Bloomberg and, uh, and Gates who put so much money into that. And how did you get involved in that? Did you just apply or were you invited? I was asked if I'd be interested. It was a time when I took long service leave from the ministry and uh, the person who was running the scheme said, 
be willing to travel. <laughs> I said, well, not out of the question. Yeah. So it was a time when I was thinking maybe I should try a little bit of freelancing for a while. So um, that really highlights the importance of networks, really. I've heard that from other people. Do you find that important in your work? You, you, I should, if there's something happening that's big in my area, I should probably know who it is. I should probably know the person. It's unusual for me not to know. So that's what happened here. The person who was ru initially running the scheme had been in charge of tobacco control in Victoria and the Every Cigarette's Doing You Damage campaign. And as it happened, I knew her in England because she worked in the same National Health Promotion Agency. Global experts in this area, they do know what they go to conferences. And they have that same value set that they're not in it for the money either. Yeah. But gosh, it's great to have lots of it to spend on. Yeah, <laughs> so that really shows if there is a lot of money and resources thrown into something, it can have really big impact. There's yeah. absolutely no question. And if you look at, as they have done, the countries that have been part of the Bloomberg Initiative, I mean, very cleverly they decide, or they ask, where is the problem the greatest? Where can we save most lives? Answer, it's China, it's India, it's the Philippines, it's Bangladesh. Big countries, big burden. Um, those policies make a huge difference, and they have. And just in terms of smoking compared to something like obesity, mm. I feel like smoking's very like there's this one thing that you do, you smoke. Whereas is obesity a bit different because it's what you're eating every day. It's kind of not such a black and white thing for people in their heads. It's fair to say we've been at it longer in tobacco. We have a framework convention, so we have an international treaty. We've codified what needs to be done very well. It's had the benefit of hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. behind it. So we know what works in tobacco. It, it does involve fiscal strategies, which are not necessarily that easy. It does involve controls of advertising. It does involve offering some cessation services, although most people will give up cold turkey. But it's relatively streamlined compared to the world of obesity, which is very complex, and physical activity, because so many partners are required to deliver the solutions. So what makes for influences on obesity? We have a wonderful map from the Foresight project in the UK, which looked at the influences on obesity. I like to call it the spaghetti map because it's so complicated. Yeah. And there's no one solution, and it's, it's complex in terms of its origins. I mean, if you think about it, we didn't have a um, set of populations that grew obese overnight. It took yeah. years and years and years, and lots of little things changed to cause that. So the causality is complex, so too is the, are the solutions to that. So it requires multiple partnerships at multiple levels with a wide range of strategies. There's no one magic bullet there. That's a lot harder than tobacco. And so what are you hoping sort of for the next part of your career? What are you really hoping to achieve? I think as I get older, I've just had my uh, when I'm 64 moment with uh, celebrating the Beatles. So I'm in you know, a latter phase of my career. I'm interested in things, as I was at the outset interested in things that are going to make the biggest impact on mm. public health. That's why I was interested in physical activity. Yeah. That's why I've been interested in tobacco control and in non-communicable diseases, which is where most of the preventable burden is. Now I'm picky about what I'm doing as I'm, as I'm getting a bit older. It's still in these areas. You can get a little bit jaundiced when you've seen... I'll give you the example of obesity. We had a discussion yesterday, which was something like, oh, there's going to be a national obesity plan. No, it's not an episode of Utopia. We're really going to have one. And then the group said, well, how many of these have we had? And the answer is, we, we've had several of them. You could almost draw a graph saying, is there a linkage between the development of obesity strategy and the increase in the prevalence of obesity? I think it was 1990. 
seven, perhaps a little earlier, we had the first one, which was called Acting on Australia's Weight, driven by the National Health Medical Research Council. Some people have flippantly called it Waiting on Australia's Act, because you get these strategies, but you don't get the follow-through in terms of investment. So one of my passions is about the science linking to the policy, good policy, but thinking through, well, actually, what is required to deliver? Where have we made our mistakes? Why are we failing on obesity? So we've we just done a paper on that a couple of weeks ago, saying, well, there's, there's four classic failures that seem to happen around this. One is we think that there's one magic bullet, so we, we don't fully understand that it yeah. takes that broad approach. There can be investment failure, so we pick the right things, but we don't appreciate that. You have to keep at it, and it's an intensive intervention. So it's not enough to have it... Uh, this year before the election yeah. minister. You've actually got to do it for four, five or six years. Another one is around governance. There are a lot of opponents of things like sugar taxes mm. and labelling and without the right governance, without the right understanding then we open the policy making, the policy domain to interference and corruption really. So we have to have in place checks and balances that protect the public interest from being undermined tobacco industry gives the best examples of the sort of interference tactics. There's another failure which is government fails to appreciate that it has a role to intervene when there's market failure. If there's lots of advertising out there, if there's um, a fast food outlet everywhere you go, like there is in the western suburbs of Sydney, mm. it's very, very difficult to see your way through to a healthy lifestyle. Everything is countering it. There is a role for government to intervene, to think through What's the right number of outlets for this population? Why is that so cheap? Maybe we need to think about some cost signals. What about the price of healthy food and so on? So there's, and just in terms of the information, the marketing that's saturating the environment, it's like, it's like the wallpaper of daily lives. Yeah. So these are the things that I like to think about now in terms of policy. And so I will engage more where I'm confident that there's going to be some follow-through and some thoughts. And happily, that's been the case in New South Wales. We've had uh, a government that made it a premier's priority. However cynical one might be, there's been some real changes in, in this jurisdiction as a result of that and real commitment. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. I really like how you said the wallpaper of life because it really is things that you see every day and that you don't even realise are sort of coming into your subconscious. And yet some people have been bold and made the changes. Sally Khan, the Mayor of London, has removed those adverts from from public transport. Really? I didn't know that. They've That's done awesome. it in Amsterdam. So, you know, it can be done. It requires bold leadership yeah. sometimes. So I have two last questions. One is more of a personal note in terms of what's worked for you in terms of your career. That, are there any things that you've found that you've sort of looked back and go, yeah, I did that really well. That's actually really helped me to sort of progress. Well, I think one thing is that some of the learning doesn't just come with a public health or a population health label on it. So some of the things that have made a difference have actually been from areas just like leadership, general management, things. There's an oldie but goldie, uh, Seven Habits of Effective People book, for example, yeah, the like old Stephen Covey chestnut. I've seen that actually applied in leadership development for public health, and it's, you know, the things about putting first things first, and seeking first to understand. They're all very good principles for the work that we do in public health as well. The one I, one I like most is perhaps seek first to understand, because we're very fond of going into certain settings like schools or whatever, and telling them how they've got to adopt our new program to stop kids smoking. Yeah. But actually what we've got to do is understand how we might be able to blend in with their core business 
and turn our smoking control objectives into learning objectives that fit with the system and become sustainable. There's another one from the cubby book that I think is good for us, good medicine, and that's keep sharpening the saw. So we keep yeah, learning, you know, and uh, there's different ways of learning. I learn from my colleagues and teams all the time. Sometimes I'm supposed to be mentoring, mentoring them, but it's usually a two-way street. Yeah. Yeah. So learning things in places that you don't necessarily expect it. Be open to it. Yeah. yeah. My last question is usually, do you have a favourite book or something that's made you think differently about the world? So you've, you've mentioned one. Is there another book that you really enjoy or do you want to stick with that as your answer? Mm. Mm. It sounds a bit corny, but I think I, think I will stick with that's The okay. Seven Habits because I'm fond of bringing different bodies of literature and different ideas back into public health and saying, we can use this. Yeah. That's probably my favourite. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it's it. I have a, a lot more questions, but I'm very conscious of time. So, um, yeah, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure.